Hello and welcome to another episode of the JuxtaCast. Today we have Alex, Hugo, Malcolm and myself, Joanna, talking about making the world a better place, open source and fixing the NHS. Enjoy the show! So welcome to this week's episode of the JuxtaCast. Today we have... Alex Davis. Hello. Hugo Jacob. Hi. And Joanna Antalali. Hello. And we're going to be talking about uh, a few things. So Hugo, you're a new member of the, the podcast. So the podcast, yes. I've been in uh, Jacques the company for like a year and a bit now. I do I do my whole um, closure background and history and so forth. Yes, please. All right, yeah. Uh, so I stumbled on the closure completely by accident. I had never heard of it when uh, the man who is now my brother-in-law offered me a job in, uh, in his uh, uh, company. We were uh, doing like a risk system for funding uh, a bank, essentially, a private bank. So I spent a couple of months there just learning from scratch, uh, and then the CEO of that bank was uh, discovered of having stolen billions from Denmark, and he ran away to Dubai. So... Uh, I still love closure. I didn't love finance so much anymore. So yeah, so uh, from there, just looking at who is who's doing closure in, in the UK, and that's where I found, uh, I found Juxt. Then on, uh, I've been um, on a couple of projects. Right now, I'm on a project called uh, Servest, which is about uh, using uh, machine learning on... Uh, like farm data, satellite images of farms, uh, uh, past information about their yields, uh, some uh, biodiversity information, some various uh, factors to predict uh, how big a yield a farmer is going to get, um, which is getting more and more valuable these days because uh, because of climate change, essentially. Farming has become bit of a high-risk business, not really high-risk, but much more high-variance than it was before. And it's it's extremely valuable uh, for, for a farmer, for a cooperative, for anyone involved in that business uh, to know in advance whether they're going to have a good year or a bad year, whether they should invest in uh, in fertilizers or, or whether it's going to be a terrible year either way, what irrigation do they need. So this has a huge amount of potential. Um, both money-wise, but actually to to make the world a better place. Like it's nice to deliver a product that's actually going to um, uh, improve productivity, uh, improve, uh, reduce the number of third-world farmers that uh, end up in in famine. And it's just it's just a pretty good, nice place to work at. So on the theme of making the world a better place, because we haven't really thought about that, Juxton, in in the sense that our first few years has been really to stay in business and write closure and we've been really kind of keen to pick and select the right technologies and being able to create apps quickly as I've seen uh, Hugo and Lucio being able to put something together very very quickly in a matter of months which potentially could have taken a lot longer. Yes it's nice to be able to make an app very quickly but only if that app actually adds something to the world. (laughs) It, It depends what you mean by adding something to the world I mean. Like if it's just moving money around, it's not creating any value. It's being useful to some people and harmful to other people and you're kind of... You're, you're creating value by making developers get paid to do closure, which uh, increases closure share of the market. That's actually a fair point, yes. 
um, because we open source so much, we, there's a decent <coughs> amount of whatever work we do that ends up benefiting the whole world. Just something to add to what you were saying, Hugo. My dad's a farmer and you were saying about the variability and knowing your yield beforehand is a really good thing. So he sells, uh, he, he can sell a portion of his crop or all of it before harvest and lock in a price. So it's, it's like you're definitely going to get this. Mm-hmm, yeah. But that means he has to then predict that A, he's going to get that much Otherwise, you'll face huge penalties. Or B, there's not going to be a massively better price afterwards. So it's yeah, kind of a gamble. Some, some farmers sell uh, their products like as a community. Some farmers sell it, uh, sell futures. Either way, someone has to take that risk. Yeah. And yeah. in fact, I think futures is that classic thing. Of I think it was the earliest form of derivative yes. trading. I think it was the Chicago Board of Trade that invented it. But this thing goes hundreds of years back. I think. 18 yes, yes. something. So, yeah, very, a lot of these financial innovations do overlap. And that would be quite a lot of money to if we were into that investing kind of area. We are, service is not. Service is trying to be on the level of the farmers, on the co-ops, uh, not on the level of the stock market. But potentially, which is actually sort of how they get talent. Some of the people that work for them uh, work from the, for them just because they think it's a good cause. Uh, and they wouldn't work for a competitor that was just out to make money. It's, it's again, nice atmosphere. Uh, but, yeah, there's a ton of money to be made if someone wants to just uh, make money. I mean, we talk a lot about mission in Juxt, and we've had a mission to make software development easier. Okay, But you can, you can make software development really easy. To, you can make it easier to create the Death Star. You can make it easy to bomb people and make missiles and stuff. So it's not... I mean, technology can be used for good or bad, do companies have a have a conscience? Should they have ethics? Should they exist in the world to take an opinion on making the world better? Hugo, you um, yes, I, I had opinions on that kind of topic. Yes, um, in my ideal world, uh, no, but there would be enough government oversight so that any externalities that the company generates end up costing the company something. So no, you're not, you, you, you don't have to, uh, I don't know, help farmers in the third world, uh, but that should become in some way uh, the way for your company to make money. Like being ethical should be re- rewarded uh, so that you only have to care about the money. Yeah, exactly. Because if, if you had to choose between ethics or profit, and you chose ethics over You profit. will be over, overperformed by someone who yeah, didn't. Yeah, be eliminated. Yeah. yeah. So then the question is, I mean, should, what, you know, closer to home, what should a company like ours be thinking about? Because I, I mean, it doesn't sit well with me that we should just be trying to go after shareholder value or profit because, it, you know, we are, um, you know, we're a group of technologists that, that have something to give to the world. We, we understand there are a lot of, problems that we have particular you know, tools, uh, sometimes unique tools, to be able to offer value. Now, you, you um, um, Alex, you were talking about ikigai? Yeah, so ikigai is a Japanese word, literally means sort of uh, meaning of life, and it's split into four sections. So there's the what you love, what the world needs, what you can be paid for, and what you're good at. And then this whole idea of it's very, very difficult to find like one sort of purpose that provides all of these things to the level that you need. If you happen to have a job that you really enjoy doing, you get paid for it and you're good at it, 
but it's not, you know, what the world needs because you're a investment banker or something like that. But the effective altruism community would tell you you can skip that what the world need uh, needs uh, bubble entirely as long as you donate a fraction of your income. You can be a very good investment banker and you'll probably be more valuable as a very good investment banker to the world if you make a donation of 10% of your income or whatever. 10% is kind of a standard, but uh, then if you try to be the programmer for a charity or something, sure, sure. you'll replace so, a lot of that. So this isn't this isn't necessarily a like a, a realistic what is my effect on the world type thing. I think what this is more about is it's making you feel like you're making the world a better place. And for some people, donating a large percentage of their income to various charities gives them that feeling that now I'm making the world better. So that's them fulfilling their that side of the thing, even though they're not physically, you know, going off the third world countries and building schools or whatnot. The fact that they're donating fills the bubble for them. But for other people, they wouldn't get that feeling because they wouldn't know where the money's going and then they have this uncertainty about what if I'm just sort of feeding these people and um, they're not even poor or... You're telling me I really should write that blog post on effective altruism, aren't you? Because that's the sort of question I can answer, but maybe not in a short form. So I, I'm kind of interested in some of these kind of... You know, it's very, very easy to feel negative about the world. And, and you know, you read newspapers, and all newspaper journalists seem to do all the time is to put other people down, and, and, and whether they're politicians or celebs or, you know, anyone who's got any um, drive to make the world a better place seems to be a kind of a character cheered or uh, criticized or made fun of and I'm, I'm thinking it kind of makes it easier to to feel negative and just to say well all I can do in life is just be on the sidelines and be a spectator and then you get some people that just decide that even with the risk of being naive that they're going to go and do it anyway and I'm, I'm talking about people like you know the Greta Sundbergs and the um, Boyan Slats who's Boyan Slats is this guy who from an early age, decided he wanted to clean up plastic in the ocean and, and just have, has created R&D and, and has got this kind of dream to be able to clear up plastics in the ocean in five years. And this extraordinary drive and ambition, which you think, well, there's never going to achieve that. But actually, nothing gets achieved without those people. That it just decides that we're going we're gonna to do this. And, and, you know, people point to you know, remarkable leadership, you know, Steve Jobs and those sort of, you know, there's people who just, through their sheer will of personality, can make effective change in the world. Interesting that you mention Steve Jobs, though, because him and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and many of these billionaire technologists who have kind of shaped the world of technology as it is today, there's plenty of evidence throughout history of them doing what I think most people would agree as morally wrong things mm. to get where mm. they were. Um, and then there's this question of, was that sort of worth it? Like if you've got the concept of... Ethical, off uh, ethical offsets? Yeah. Oh, utility, yes, utilitons. Yeah. So, so Bill Gates now, you know, donates huge amounts of chari to charity, probably more than anyone else. But mm. was does that offset the damage he mm. did, you know, by making everyone use Internet Explorer? Mm. <laughs> I'm reminded by, about Andrew Carnegie, who was the the great steel, American steel baron, U.S. steel baron, who 
had very vicious trade union you know busting in pittsburgh and in, in, you know in the factories and and was a kind of real tyrant and really became a you know multi multi-billionaire and then a lot of the thing in the steel industry at the time was actually being used to make tanks and machine guns and bullets and, and, and uh, naval. There was a huge, great, big uh, militarization before the First World War. And in a way that all of that kind of was his fault, or some of it was his fault, that you had all this militarization going on, which caused the First World War, in fact. But Andrew Carnegie was so uh, such a pacifist and wanted to, you know, he worked so hard to... To, and, and got world leaders together and the US president and that you know to to try and avoid the, the disaster of the first world war and and failed um, but he gave entire his entire uh, wealth away i mean he started thousands of libraries where he would buy all the books or put these you know the huge amounts of theaters and things oh you know and even today there are bursaries from this um 100, 100 years ago and and so um, is he making up for past misdeeds? Or well, there's also the concept of like how replaceable you are. Like if he didn't do the harm he did, would someone else have taken his place? Except without the building a library part. Mm. Yeah, right, right. So there's also the thing that you can't just put the ownership on these big personalities. So it's not just um, the Bill Gates of this world. So I think a dangerous trap to fall into is oh, he's more powerful, oh, they've had to do this and that, and now they're in a position where they can do good for the world. It's also a collective thing. So, like, the this guy who went and collected all the plastic from the ocean, well, how about, as an individual, we use less plastic? That doesn't seem like a big deal. You look at something and you're like, oh, well, why should I bother if the supermarkets aren't? But unless a lot of people start doing these things... I think it's. I think it's very dangerous to start thinking. Well, you can only make a change if you are. Big yeah, yeah. Oh, you know the feeling. Oh, I'll wait until I'm as rich as Bill Gates, mm. and then mm. I will spend all my money on, yeah. on. You know. Yeah. And and that is that's always an excuse, isn't it, to delay? Yeah. Until you know, I. In fact, a lot of these stories, people start doing this when they've actually got nothing, and they yeah. they start and they make a little bit of money and they reinvest that, and you know. So unless you're actually. So I mean, I think about this as a you know the juxta as a collective because I I'm a believer that you can do more as a group of as individuals. You don't only need a few individuals working together, pulling in the same direction, and you have a tug of war team, and it's, it, you can you can affect great change. And I've seen histories kind of listed with examples mm -hmm. of people who can affect great change when those people have all got a particular mission and that they all driven by the start kind of a snowball effect so there's a few of you and then a few more and then a few people say oh okay actually it's okay for them to do it it's kind of looks quite cool yeah. so there was that hashtag did you see it the trash trash tag trash tag yeah and loads of people like it, it's cool to do now so everyone's What's, doing it why isn't everyone it? doing it anyway so it's on on twitter was it uh the on hash instagram, instagram yeah. trash tag so people would post before pictures of a park that was covered in litter or a beach that had loads of stuff all over it and then an after picture with them and all the bin bags saying oh, oh. trash tag you know just cleaned this up i'm a great person um yeah because well, it's cool I, I, that, that is pretty cool but i do sometimes wonder if Some people are going out to a perfectly clean beach, <laughs> taking a picture of it, and then <laughs> getting a commercial crane to dump all of the, the rubbish from their tip onto it, take reverse, a picture afterwards. Yes. Reverse trash. We <laughs> do not tell from the EXIF dates in the images, or I suppose they could be forged as well. Yeah, well, I mean, Twitter, they all strip them, so... Yeah. 
it's a conspiracy. Well, it's funny. I mean, generally people tend to do good. And that's that Wikipedia paradox that they thought, well, nobody would have an online encyclopedia because it would get vandalised all the time. And, um, and it didn't because the original group, there was enough yeah, good enough, people. Yeah, yeah. It was a critical mass thing. There's um, Like in um, Japan, they have this sort of rule where the kids tidy the school at the end of the school day. So after the last lesson, everyone gathers together and you tidy up the school. And what it means is that people keep the school tidy because... There's ownership, they, isn't it? It's... They, yeah, uh, they don't, they, partly because they don't want to give themselves more work, but also because once you've tidied it, you kind of feel proud that you've made it look clean and then you're more aware that this is a clean place mm. and it takes work to make it clean. And the same with the streets. If you keep them clean as possible all the time, that people are less likely to sort of break things, mm. and I think... It's the classic broken windows uh, syndrome. But, the, and, and, but I, I, I kind of, going back to your idea, Hugo, is it for the council and the government to pr- maintain the windows? Or, or, or is, there a, is there a role for people to clear up where they are in their own situation? I think that um, the government uh, is in a position to be way more effective than individuals but if individuals completely stop because I think uh, they can't make no difference it changes them like you become a worse person if you never make an effort and then if you become a worse person you stop donating or you stop whatever actual positive contribution you used to have to the world. So I think there's a bit of a virtue ethics mm. kind of thing. Uh, you can't uh, completely uh, outsource your, your your morals because then you stop outsourcing your morals. Mm. I think that's a, it's an important point you make about if people believe that they can make a difference. That belief is really important. If you, if you work in an organisation mm. or a company where you are shown that you cannot make a difference, that you're everything you try you know doesn't affect any change and you're, you're you're told this is not your job or you're you know and, and you're crushed your spirit is crushed you never never try and I, I you know i i mean i've been in hospital recently and i i, I kind of feel impassioned to to help improve the nhs but i know that there's a lot of people in the nhs who who, who want to but they feel they just they just can't and there's a lot of desire to you know who and, and I think that you've got to allow people to, to make local changes. And that goes against kind of saying, well, we need some sort of central policy and make sure everybody uses the same stuff or the same process. Because that means I mean, individual, if you let it up to individuals, of course, people are going to have diversity of opinion and they're going to change different things. And you're going to get more kind of chaos in, in that sense. And for some people, that's really difficult to, to think that oh, with the hospital some you'd get good hospitals and bad hospitals and it would end up being a, a postcode lottery because there would be but I think you do need a little bit of both you, you need that, that central drive but the cent- the center has to enable and facilitate people on the in, on the edges and the fringes to to, to bring you know to, to, to work to improve their own situations you want to give the power to the people that are using it every day to to streamline it because they know where all the holes are. Whereas if you make them feel like they have no sway on anything, they'll just put up with it. And like you said, it's, oh, it's not my job. Mm. I can't do anything. Mm. But the best changes are probably going to be made by the people who know what needs to be changed. 
Well, you also need, I mean, you are, one of the things you were complaining about was uh, uh, the lack of communication between different uh, services and the fact that you had to enter your data, the same data, a bunch of times. So you, you do need, in that situation, like common data formats, common standards. Um, you can't just have every individual. Uh, Not a free-for-all for everyone to yeah, implement their yeah. changes, but more of an inclusive Yeah, you, you need to build roads because otherwise everyone just gets on their tractor and you just churn up everything yeah. Yeah. and that's and unless you get uh companies that specialize in translating hospital a data into hospital b data and then you have <laughs> does to, exist and probably consumes <laughs> a massive amount of money yeah. but yes yeah I, I think that you see this problem sort of all over the place and in areas which are more open uh, more used you see it less like more in areas where there is more competition you see this a lot less because if somebody tries to say, oh, yeah, I've got this thing and it does X, but it's, the, it, it's uh, you know, a proprietary thing and someone else get, builds exactly the same thing, but it's open, people will go for the open thing because you're not locked in. And but as soon as you get something at the scale of, I don't know, Apple or something, then you start seeing... Uh... E even Apple. So, e so Apple is a good example because Apple is like a huge company and there's, you know, the biggest company in the world maybe or by by profits um, and for a long time they were as proprietary as they could be so you know like uh, they didn't use x86 architecture and usb usb and then, and gradually over time they've added usb you know like the latest ipads have usb c instead of oh, their cool. proprietary lightning thing you can About plug in time. i know i know but it's a it's it's show that if you are used by like a majority of people and there's enough competition out there, it will effectively drive people to the more open standards. And I think in areas where you don't have this competition, in cinema, for example, if you want a cinema camera, there's very few companies that sell cinema cameras because it's a very niche market. And each of these sell their own memory cards, their own like handles, their own accessories of all sorts of things, which are widely available everywhere else and probably their memory cards are just standard ssds just in a special enclosure <laughs> and they charge 10 times the price because they can because it's a proprietary thing and you have to get it from them and i think you see the same thing in hospitals like it's a it's a niche market you can't you know you, no one wants to buy a bedside monitor for blood pressure for their house um but only if it's a necessity. It's, people aren't buying these things for fun. They're not buying them. Yeah. You don't have to attract the customer to get it. The customer normally needs it. And also because there's uh, other barriers to entry to get into that market. There's all sorts of legal requirements that you have to go through to get something that's approved that's not going to give the wrong readings and probably need a ton of money to enter that market space exactly. just to get through the paperwork. And once you are there, you are incentivized to keep uh, these barriers to, hunt, uh, to entry as high as possible. Yes, yeah. yeah, you don't want to compete with anyone because that's going to, you know, you need to be able to sell, sell and upsell your entire solution and then, it, then the closed nature of the industry helps you, which is why I think, that, you know, healthcare is primarily driven by the vendors now and, and unfortunately um, and not for, it's not driven by patients, which is you know, and you can see economically why that's been the case. But in tech, for example, we have really understood what infrastructure is, or we've come to understand the value of 
open source and open uh, and and network and even yeah. before open source uh, we uh, we know standards when we talk about standards we're talking about tcp ip where we get a group of people together and they sort of talk about what are the binary patterns that need to go on the wire and and in order to get you know, something of one talking one language to talk to something else or you know uh, talk printer or talk to a you know network device and they can all be coming from different a cisco can be talking to yeah this is the this thing we understand this when we've lived this world and we've seen the benefits of this world and we've seen the internet grow up which is kind of one of the most incredible things in my lifetime you know that um, and we've seen the interoperability and the benefits of that, and we've seen the growth of the web, and it's it's kind of changed society. Whereas when you strip away that infrastructure and you don't have openness, you go back to something that is fairly corrupt or you know it's so disadvantaged, very almost resembling a, a banana republic. And I mean, when I look at the NHS technology, I, you know, the, I I don't see that there's really been any doesn't seem to be to be any progress in the last twenty thirty yeah. years. Because I think this whole the lack of openness stagnates progress completely. Like if you could, if you think of a world without open source, every time you start a project, it's like right, I want to make a website, so I need a server to do my HTTP requests, and I can't use one without licensing it for a large amount of money. So I guess I have to build it, and then everyone just starts building their own thing, and they're just all reinventing the wheel. Like if you imagine if the wheel was like licensed by some company and no one else could make another version of the wheel without paying a trademark and I mean these sort of things exist mm. and I think they've all been fairly damaging to progress and but it's similar to scientific research isn't it if someone someone does a load of research they'll write a paper on it yeah exactly and then loads of people test that write more papers on it and then if you go back in if you want to find some more stuff about this thing then you'll think, okay, I'll, I'll go and look at the research papers that have been done. Great, they've done that. I trust it because loads of people have done that. You know, if everything's closed source, you don't get that because you haven't seen people trying and testing different ways and things that are working and how did they get that working so well. Um, yeah. I mean, there's been openness in the academic scientific community hundreds of years. and. Yeah. and and that again, you know, you don't think there would be the scientific progress that predates the technological progress without that openness. But I think it, ha it has scientific progress or scientific academic publications have stagnated, and now there's a, a, a around the whole data, you know, publishing data, and then there's a big open data movement in science to say, well, you know, just don't give us the data that proves your theory. Give us all the data, and and. Let us see your interpretation. And, and they needed the replication crisis to actually drive them to that, but yes. Yeah, yeah but it, it, I mean, you can then look at somebody's methodology and how they've looked at the, you know, because there is a, a lot of a deceit in publishing just the arguments or just the data that backs up your argument. It, publishing everything, every piece of data, every data point you have. Um, that again, that is the open source mindset. You just publish it all and what the hell. I mean, I publish stuff. If people find bugs in it, that's great. That's that's good news. It's not, it doesn't reflect badly necessarily on on me, or perhaps it does. But that's the open source mindset. You just you don't care. You just put it over the wall. But we all learn from each other that way, and it's all oh, there is that bug. I saw that bug. That's great. I won't do that bug in mine now. But you mm. know, it's it's all, it's a collective thing. It's it's a friendly thing rather than being. 
and and it doesn't mean that you can't make any money because you know we're we're a consultancy we have a lot of open source libraries and all of these libraries are sort of general purpose things that can be used for any project and those are the things we open source but then someone wants something built out of that uh, that's the you know the billable asset mm. i guess and you don't want to open source that because it well, I mean, I feel it's dishonest to make money from cheating by hiding secrets because I think a secrets is cancerous to understanding. And, and in, in a way, you should be making money out of helping people directly. Why not? You know, that's so. Services, I think, is a, a very is the right way of making money. You're, you're, you're helping people, you're building solutions. But if, if you discover some reusable, some really useful things for society, and in the course of doing that. And you then decide, well, you're going to you're going to make a secret or a patent on that, and you're going to then protect that. I mean, patents were were originally a really great idea because they they allowed people to make a bit of money for a period of time just to bootstrap the you know to to, to reward them for the the research. But then generally that was the exchange. You know, you make this invention available to everybody, and you know you're going to get a little bit of a head start. But that was all it was. But now. Patents are things that you know lock people in. You know, Twenty-five years is far too much more, far too much of a head start. It's, it locks, it pre prevents and stifles innovation. Um, same with copyright. Same with a, a lot of these things. They've been corrupted, um, which makes it kind of, kind of much much harder for progress. My favourite patent story that I learned. This is going back to medical again. Is um, when I can't, I don't know if I'll be able to pronounce his name properly, but is it Jonas Salk, Jonas Salk, the polio the guy who came up with the polio vaccine? They said to him, why, well, why didn't you patent it? You know, you make loads of money off this. And I think his quote was, well, you wouldn't patent the sun. Like something that is so, like such a great discovery. Why would you patent this? This is going to do so much good. What, like, yes, I could make loads of money, but then who am I? Yeah, I think if you, if you discover something which used in the right way, can do a lot of good, but mm. you don't want it to be used in the wrong way. Or are we talking about GPT two now? The, oh. or the open AI. The open AI uh, made a um, uh, neural network thing that uh, generates. Oh, text. Uh, yeah. yeah, generates marketing or well, whatever. Gen you generates want. a continuation of, of a text prompt, right. and it's really good. And they've only released a crippled version because they're worried that if they release the full version, it might actually <laughs> be very useful to spammers and that kind of. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it sparked a, dis a discussion uh, in the in the AI community. So I was thinking that was what you were referring to. But no, I'm I'm not sure I I fully made up my mind on my opinion of it because I can you you can see both arguments. Like I think it's it's fair enough to think if we give this access to the world, there's a lot more chance that someone will do something bad with it. But at the same time, what if somebody realizes something? That, make it a lot better and by making it public you at least open it up and I mean I mean there's of course there is there is balance to stri strike and going back to infrastructure in the NHS that of course there is a balance between what what is infrastructure and then what is the products and services that sit and thrive on that infrastructure where where do you draw the line if you make everything infrastructure then you've got something really really rigid and there's no uh, no prospect for individual innovation you know, and everything has to be kind of very yeah centered i know that a central authority dictate everything but you you don't want that either so you you need to work out well obviously technology in the nhs needs to be above 
the, the, the wires and the pipes of the networks. And of course you need wireless and wired networks, but then you need so much more layers on top before you can start having an app ecosystem. And the problem with the NHS thinking is that they, they've got a little bit of wired infrastructure from BT, and then they're thinking, oh, now we'll create an app ecosystem. It doesn't work like that. You, you have yeah. to have you have to have layers. And and I think we, we have a lot, of, lot to offer as technologists because we kind of understand the way that, you know, technology is a very layered thing and, and it works because there are certain things that are, are standardised and there are certain things that are not standardised and that balance is, is key. And I'm not saying you can't make money out of being in healthcare. I think that, you know, I'm not talking about, we, you know, we need socialism in the NHS. You could have a healthy marketplace. It's just a very unhealthy marketplace. It, it's kind of large companies preying on zombie institution that's kind of been controlled by vendors and that's a big shame especially in healthcare because there's so many people who you know whose lives could be made better just by a small percentage increase improvements in in some things it have a massive massive effect and they did have a they did make a push to modernize it was it like 10 years ago or something uh and they hired accenture for people mm. uh, and it, it was basically a giant money pit mm. nothing came out of it well very very little came out of it yeah they took 12 billion pounds, I think, in, in lorries to a little field in England. It's created a huge, great big pyre. And then somebody <laughs> came along with a match and set fire to it. And, Pretty and much, yeah. So the, we, we left with the kind of the embers of that. We don't have, you know, yeah. in the NHS. So, so my, my dad was working at BT when that was going on. And he was just like, it's the sort of thing that just sucks the life out of you like because you see all of this going on and you see the lorry with all the money and it's going towards the pit of fire and you know what's going to happen but what are you going to do you're going to stand in front of the lorry because they'll just run you over yeah. on the way in yeah. fact i mean i, I always told it's just one one billion actually did actually deliver and that was the the bt part which was the the spine the thing that kind of linked all of the created a separate network and uh, th there is an email system although at home i have wired internet and an e email system <laughs> i didn't spend 12 billion pounds on it but uh, you know arguably in, in health and it would be it actually be pretty good if you did have a separate air gap network in the nhs stop all these machines getting wanna cry viruses on them but so do you think there's um room for change though do you think it's potentially gone on for so long that like you were saying earlier the um, certain brands have got in there and they've built up a, a huge market for themselves and they've made it really inaccessible for anyone else to come in that now it's it's such a big task, it scares people off. I, I think there's a lot of different axes of hopelessness here. I, I mean, you'd want really strong political leadership by a very literate, technically literate uh, political leadership Unfortunately, in many countries, including Britain, the political leadership is more or less technically illiterate. I mean, if they couldn't read or write, they probably wouldn't be politicians. Yep. But they can't use a computer, but that doesn't seem to be an impediment. When I, was, when I was living in Japan, I remember on the news there was a big thing about the... I think it was the, uh, the minister for cybersecurity or like the the top government level position to deal with the problem of cybersecurity and all of these hacking attacks uh it was discovered that he had never used a computer and doesn't want to because he has people to do that for him 
<laughs> it was just like, so, so then what's your job? <laughs> yeah, it's a very important thing for your own understanding to go and see. You know, you have that Genchi Genbutsu or the, you know, the go see thing in Lean, which is just immerse yourself, go close to the factory floor or, you know, to understand something. And, and politicians don't, and they can't. They're not, either they're not give, afforded the time and the, 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 there's, you know, Thing has just become a PR circus. They're, they're too worried to to leave their offices in case they kind of have some sort of gaff with a baby or something. I mean, it's just too risky for them, and so and and so they've been pinned down by a kind of uh, a media again of journalists who who just want to to find funny stories and to disgrace these people. So I, I mean, the whole thing is is very broken from a leadership point of view. Is it possible from a technocratic point of view to, to I think there is some scope for improvement. I mean, I know how I, you know, I have a kind of manifesto of twelve things I, we're not going to talk about. But you know, Should how you publish them? Yeah, we put them in a blog. How, you know, how to fix the NHS in tech? That it, it it would it would require a pretty dramatic overhaul and a new you know new leadership. And 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 really, I think people have lost their vision for it. And um, after the, the previous debacle, it's going to be a hard sell. Like people are just going to see, oh well, it's the same thing we asked, we did try last time, or yeah. it cost us fourteen billions on. Yeah. yeah, different field this time. But then it could go back to the the whole snowball effect. So you know, I fell into the trap of saying, is it too too much of a big big thing to try? But if a few people try it and a few people start the momentum, people might start listening. Um, people might think, oh okay, and then it is actually possible and oh I've thought of this other aspect and oh yep come and join the club we're all going to change it together yeah start a bit of momentum yeah and we come full circle in a way because I, I've, I've just been kind of defending the negativeness of not doing anything <laughs> and, and then in fact you know it's going to require some young thinking of people to come who just are impassioned to make this change and are not going to let negativity stop them and in fact I mean I was I was feeling really, really down on about Tuesday morning when I couldn't sleep and I was being surrounded by buzzing monitors and I was thinking, why are these buzzing, beeping, you know, pinging sounds keeping the whole ward of children and parents up all night? What, it, what you know, why, why are we in this situation? And I, I got really down about it, that I wasn't going to get any sleep. And then I just changed my, you know, just thinking, well, how would we fix this? Even the thinking of solutions you know to thinking of well, how would we fix it made me feel better so even if it's naive and hopeless it's a good thing to just think about solutions rather than dwelling on the futility of or perceived problem i've been uh re-watching the wire oh yeah and uh there's some like there's a running theme throughout the show of people who are in this sort of situation in the government like uh, specifically in the police, there's pressure from the mayor to drop the crime rates because there's an election. And so there's pressure on the police commissioner to drop the crime rate. So they put pressure on their people below them, say, drop the crime rate. You know, one of them is like, just be creative and then walks out the room. And the police just start, you know, arresting random people off the street and or just sort of fiddling with the statistics. And, and there's this one guy who is... Uh, He's like a, a district commander or something. So not like super top level, but leader of a, a, his own district. And he just takes it into his own hands. He's just like, I've had enough of all of this. I, I can make a change here. So he uh, 
rounds up all of the drug dealers on all of the corners in his district and just has a chat with them and just says, if you go to this vacant housing area and you deal your drugs there, we won't bother you. Like, it's good for us. You know, the crime will go down. We can show the police the streets have been cleaned up and you can still deal your drugs and you don't have to worry about us seizing your money and all this sort of thing. And, um, yeah, kind of predictably, as soon as word of that, that that is happening gets out, the whole thing has to be shut down and <laughs> chaos resumes. But for a minute, there's like this sort of glimmer of hope that he's he's made some change. And So that about, about wraps it up. Yep. So from all of us here at Juxt, take it easy and see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>